Uh, obviously, I am not Dr. Salazar, who is out attending to a family matter. So he asked me to uh, sub in his place. And actually, it's a great pleasure for me because I've worked with uh, Dr. Matson, our speaker, for quite a number of years and I'm quite an admirer of him. Uh, just to give you a little bit of a background, I, I guess I should introduce myself. Most of you know me, but many of you don't. So my, my name is Justin Radoff. I'm the Senior Scientific Advisor to Connecticut Children's. And most of my activities are, are over at the Health Center, but I, I make it over here from time to time. So first, let me tell you a little bit about, about Adam. Uh, one thing which, looking at a CV, you always pick up things that you, you didn't know. And what I discovered in looking at his CV is that he initially wanted to be a classical guitarist. He enrolled for his first college at the Hart School of Music here in Hartford. Uh, and, and he continued as a in minor for classical guitar at, at when, once he, he transferred to the University of Connecticut. I guess someday we'll ha we'll have to hear how, hear you play, but he did extremely well at UConn. Uh, he graduated from the Department of Pathobiology, summa cum laude, and I know people there, and they still sing his praises. He was really a very memorable student. He then went on to Tufts to do his uh, to get his medical degree, and then uh, did his residency in pediatrics at Bay State, and then it came back to Connecticut Children's or back to Hartford rather. Uh, to do neonatology, and then he continued on as a neonatology research fellow and, and was able to get a very prestigious K award from the NIH for training. And along the way, he also managed to pick up his master's of science degree. So he's an extraordinarily well-trained person. Uh, I just want to close by saying that uh, Adam is a true triple threat. I mean, he's a superb clinician. He's an absolutely spectacular educator, as you'll see at lecture. And uh, he's also a very accomplished scientist. And I think he's going to integrate some of that into his talk today. He began his research career as an allergist. Uh, and he made some actually very interesting discoveries. But somewhere along the way, we managed to convince him to shift his emphasis to necrotizing enterocolitis, which is what he will be discussing with us today. So I give you Dr. Matson. Thank you, Justin, and good morning, everybody. Appreciate the opportunity to give you an update on NEC and um, uh, talk a little bit about some of the recent work that we're doing in the lab. Um, just make sure I get all set up here. I'll, I'll do my best to try to keep, the, keep this clinically relevant at, at times as well. Um, okay, I have nothing to disclose. Um, here are the objectives. Uh, they are to describe the pathophysiology of NEC, uh, which is the current understanding and the role of pro-inflammatory signaling to discuss the impact of the microbiome and NEC pathophysiology, and then to discuss some dietary influences on the neonatal microbiome. Um, so this is the disease we're talking about today, uh, NEC necrotizing enterocolitis that we know is a, um, a devastating acute inflammatory bowel disease of neonates, occurs mainly in premature infants. In general, the smaller the baby, the higher the risk of, of developing NEC. We'll talk a little bit more about that. It has a high mortality rate, uh, approaching 20 to 40%, about a third of the infants require surgery. Uh, we know it's strongly associated with oral formula feeding and microbial colonization of the gut and human milk is protective, and there are many long-term problems in those who survive, including short bowel syndrome. So oftentimes these are babies that end up on the floor long-term on TPN at risk for um, intestinal failure and also at high risk for um, adverse neurodevelopmental outcomes. Here are some of the clinical features. You see a hypotonic preterm infant with some abdominal distension, some periumbilical erythema, uh, requiring respiratory support, has a repogal tube in place to help to try to decompress the, the abdomen. Um, from a uh, uh, radiographic standpoint, the pathognomonic finding is pneumatosis intestinalis, which is gas that's in the bowel wall as a result of bacteria that is translocated in, fermenting and producing gas, and sometimes you'll even see portal venous gas. Um, and uh, then this is the unfortunate finding oftentimes at laparotomy where you have necrotic dead gut that 
that, that needs to be removed. Right. From a historical perspective, this was first described by Rabel in 1957. Um, and then in the late 70s, Dr. Martin Bell, the pediatric surgeon, proposed his uh, staging system to help identify which uh, babies with neck would benefit the most from, from having surgery. Here's the staging system. Um, now this or minor variations of the staging system are still used today. Um, it includes stage one is suspect, and this is really based on soft calls, um, temperature instability, emesis, mild abdominal distension. The stage two is definitive NEC, and if you look at studies that are looking at NEC risk, they, it, it's stage two or above. Okay, stage two is definitive NEC where there is pneumatosis, um, a more marked abdominal distension. There may be GI bleeding, more. Um, gross GI bleeding, and stage three is advanced, where you have systemic signs uh, that can progress to shock, hypotension, and with or without pneumoperitoneum. Um, it's important to point out some of the, the characteristics of the patients that were used when the staging system was created back in the, in the 70s. Um, you can see that the, the mean gestational ages of these babies were 33 to 34 weeks. This is at birth, uh, with birth weights of about 1,600 to 1,700 grams. So nowadays, it would be very unusual for these babies to be developing NEC. Okay. Now I point this out because while the, well, the Bell's classification has been helpful, and it was really first initiated to, to see who would benefit from surgery, what's happened is it's really been a hindrance in terms of understanding the etiology of the pathogenesis of, of NEC. Because... It's, it's homogenized really all cases of NEC under this one diagnostic umbrella of Bell's. If you have Bell's, that's NEC. And we, we know that's, that's, that's not the case. Uh, not all NEC is the same. Um, for example, uh, for years, uh, we used to group infants with spontaneous intestinal perforations, which are, we referred to as SIPs, as having neck. And we now know that that's a different entity. It occurs earlier, it's much more focal, uh, and it's more often associated with endomethacin use, um, especially if it's being used at, at the same time as steroids. And we know that term NEC uh, is different than preterm NEC, where term NEC is more often associated with an allergic or ischemic pathophysiology, such as infants with left-sided heart lesions. Um, bloody stools are more likely usually in indicating more distal disease, um, where preterm NEC is more often associated with feeding, bacterial overgrowth, abdominal distension associated with ileus, hyperimmune responses, and bloody stools are less likely. Um, so this is the NEC that I'm going to be primarily talking about today. And there are many in the field that are suggesting that this should be further divided into additional subgroups based on the inciting agent, which I, I think is appropriate as well. Right. So my point with that is, is that really when you're, when you ask what's the cause of neck, it, I think a more appropriate question uh, should be what uh, questions should be, what can lead to mucosal disruption and bacterial translocation in the preterm gut? And then why do preterm infants have such an exuberant pro-inflammatory immune response to bacterial products? From a clinical perspective, um, this entity is still incredibly difficult to predict. Okay? Um, it's very difficult to tell which baby inside the nursery is going to develop this dreaded complication. And um, so identifying some of the inciting factors, even for some of these subgroups, would be very important in terms of trying to reduce the overall incidence. So one of the things that we do know is, is that NEC is a disease of convalescence, meaning that if you look at the causes of death uh, in preterm infants, the major causes of death um, based on postnatal days after birth, NEC, which you can see here in purple, it rarely occurs in the first week of life. So early on, immaturity and respiratory distress syndrome are the major causes of death. But NEC comes later, usually after two weeks. Um, and it peaks at about four to eight weeks of life. And this, this is actually one of the things that's, it, it, it's just, it takes your breath away as a clinician um, because oftentimes you have families who are just beginning to decompress after the initial shock of having an extremely 
small baby. And the baby may be extubated, advancing on feeds, and everybody's feeling better about things. And then this disease sort of comes out of nowhere. And um, within hours to days, you're having a very different conversation with the family, whether or not the baby's going to survive or need to have a, a substantial portion of intestine removed. One of the other frustrating things about this um, is our lack as a field in preventing its occurrence. So here you see the changes in mortality over time in premature infants. And this is for uh, extremely uh, premature infants, birth weights less than 1,000 grams from 2000 to 2011. This is broken up into three different time periods. And what this data shows is that we've been getting better at reducing the overall mortality rate expresses the number of deaths per 100 per 1000 live births we've been getting better over these years as a field however this improvement is significantly influenced by reductions in deaths due to respiratory causes and we have wonderful new ventilators and uh, approaches for managing uh, immature lungs um, but in fact when you look at the deaths attributed to necrotizing enterocolitis, they've actually increased, right? Um, so the reasons for this are not entirely clear. Um, it's likely related in some way to more of the, the smallest babies surviving. Um, but uh, it also may be related to the fact that this data was collected prior to... All right prior to uh, many NICUs um, instituting policies to optimize the provision of, of, of human milk. So in about 2011 to 2012, um, there was a, a real boom in NICUs across the country using donor human milk if mother's milk was not available. Uh, at our institution, we started in, uh, in 2010. And we know that uh, human milk helps to reduce, not prevent, reduce the, the, the risk of, of NEC. So this is data from the California Perinatal Quality Care Collaboration from 22, to 22 different NICUs and their NEC rates before and after instituting donor human milk. And virtually every unit, there was a reduction in, the, in, the, uh, in their rates of, of NEC. In our own unit, we went from about 6.5% down to 4.5%. Um, and incidentally, I want to point out that this was also accompanied by an increase in the amount of mother's own milk that babies were receiving at discharge. Um, so there was an initial concern when donor human milk was, was brought out that this would reduce the amount of mother's own milk that was being provided, but actually the opposite happened. And I think this reflects um, uh, the, the fact there was much more of an emphasis on the importance of human milk in a, a preterm infant's diet in all babies. Um, so human milk reduces, but does not eliminate the risk of NEC. And you say that four and a half to 5% rates for NEC, this is for babies less than 1500 grams, um, is still significant. That's still a baby with a country developing it. Okay. So, what are some features of the disease that can tell us a little bit about, uh, about its pathogenesis? So first, um, I had mentioned uh, before that the incidence is inversely correlated to gestational age at birth. Uh, here we see the percent occurrence um, stratif stratified by gestational age for medical NAC or surgical NAC. And, and in general, the, the, the earlier the baby is born, the, the higher the risk of, of developing disease. We also know that luminal bacteria are essential for the development of NEC, okay? NEC does not occur in utero. It doesn't occur in germ-free mice. Um, I mentioned it's really unusual in the, the immediate postpartum period. It generally occurs a few weeks later after substantial intestinal colonization. We know that the, the gas, the intramural gas is produced is in pneumatosis intestinalis is of, of bacterial origin. People have done mass spec actually on the gas. Um, and there's a role for probiotics in preventing NEC. Uh, and this has been suggested, but their effectiveness thus far appears to be um, most evident in infants weighing greater than 1,000 grams. 
Okay, and those are infants that are at less risk than the smaller babies of developing NAC. Now, I'm not gonna mention much more about probiotics because that could be a talk on its own, um, but to say that they are uh, currently unapproved uh, for uh, preterm infants in the United States. The FDA actually in, issued a alert and a warning to NICUs uh, for using them unless uh, you're part of a clinical trial and the purity of the, the, the preparation can be uh, assured. And this is because um, there were some NICUs buying probiotics over the internet, um, giving them to preterm babies, and um, some of the lots were found to be contaminated with invasive mold and uh, resulted in adverse outcomes. Um, uh, so we are actually part of a clinical trial here, sponsored by a drug company using a purified preparation of lactobacillus, but um, they're not routinely used in the United States at this point for preterm infants. Right. Another thing that we know is that prolonged empirical antibiotics increase the risk of NEC. Okay. This was really a great study by Cotton and colleagues and it included more than 4,000 um, babies, less than 1,000 grams, and it's just at multiple centers. And what they showed is that the, the, the odds of NEC increased by about 7% for each additional day of empirical antibiotics. So this, this is something that I really try to stress when I'm on, on, when I'm rounding inside the NICU, and it can be difficult from a clinical standpoint. When you have a, a, a really small baby that had a slightly shifted CBC, um, there's some questions of choreo maybe, um, but it's been on the antibiotics for 48 hours, blood culture is negative, you really need to have a strong clinical indication to continue antibiotics in that baby because they're not without risk, right? And this, this can be counterintuitive to a, a lot of people because you say, well, we use antibiotics to treat NEC. Um, but that's when NEC is established and, and there's active inflammation that's going on. Um, and the thinking is that em empirical antibiotics really sort of disrupt the microbiome, the, the collection of, of microbes inside the gut, allowing uh, more of these pathogenic bacteria to, to, to thrive. All right. So that brings us to the bugs, right? So investigating the microbiome of, of NEC. Um, how do we do this? So, uh, historically, this has been difficult right? because about 70 to 80% of gut microbes really don't grow well using traditional culture methods. Um, but then about 10 to 12 years ago with the development of next generation sequencing really sort of made this, made this possible. And one of the more common methods is to do 16S ribosomal RNA gene sequencing, which I'm gonna talk a little bit about here. So first you need to have a, a, a sample, like a poop sample, which we use. You extract the DNA from that sample and then you use PCR to amplify out um, regions of the 16S ribosomal RNA gene. So this gene is present in all bacteria, but it's also variable between different communities, bacterial communities. So then you can take your PCR products, which we refer to as amplicons. Uh, you have a library of amplicons and you sequence them. And then you take your sequences and you essentially match your sequences with known sequences that are available in public reference databases that are available online. And using this method, you're able to sort of identify my, microbial communities. And many investigators have used this in order to define the communities in different areas of the body. Okay. Um, the typical readout when you're doing this type of analysis is to group the, the, the microbes according to either their phylum or class. And this, this is the type of readout you can see here. And you can see the na nasal pharynx is filled with a bunch of firmicutes. Um, and this is all based on the uh, taxonomic classification. So 16S is, is, is helpful for identifying communities, but it doesn't give you the depth to get down to a specific species of bacteria. It's not gonna tell you like you have E. coli 015787 inside a sample. But to do this type of research, you need to have a, uh, you need to have samples. And uh, fortunately, uh, that's something that we have a lot of now at Connecticut Children's. I'm gonna take this opportunity to tell you a little bit about our biorepository. So we started a neonatal specimen uh, repository back in 2017. 
and we've been recruiting all infants less than 32 weeks or less than 1500 grams, which is the same criteria as our neurodevelopmental follow-up clinic. Um, we collect fecal samples twice a week from birth until discharge, and we also collect outpatient samples as these babies are seen periodically in our, in our neurodevelopmental follow-up clinic. We send parents home with, with kits and everything is barcoded. Um, we also collect blood or buckle swabs from the infants prior to discharge so we can have infant DNA for analysis and then we have some robust linked clinical databases and to date we've collected over 3,500 fecal samples from more than 345 infants so that's a lot, a lot of poop. Right? And this is an institutional resource at this point okay and um, it's, it's enabled a number of different projects um, either looking at the, the, the relationship of gut microbes and neurodevelopmental outcomes. We've had uh, uh, fellows look at the influence of, of the microbiome in cholestasis. And uh, one of the other projects that we ended up doing early on uh, was with one of our fellows, Tristan Lindbergh, who's now a neonatologist in Colorado, was to look at the fecal microbiome of, of babies with neck compared to those without neck. And these were matched controls um, uh, matched for age, gestational age, dye, antibiotics. Um, and what we were able to show is that the, the fecal microbiome of infants with NEC were dominated by uh, these gram-negative proteobacteria, which we see here in red. Now remember, 16S tells you about bacterial communities. It doesn't want to tell you about a specific bug. Um, that the proteobacteria are gram-negatives, um, such as E. coli, Shigella, Klebsiella, Etc. Um, this was a small cohort. We had uh, six sub NEC subjects versus uh, uh, an equal amount of controls, but the results were reassuring because there's been several other investigators around the country. Erica Claude at University of Chicago and Barbara Warner at WashU. This was really the largest uh, microbiome, neck microbiome study to date, which they had 28 patients. Um, it's, you know, being a, an, an outcome that's that's relatively rare, um, common in NICUs. Um, it's tough to get a lot of patients, but all these studies have, have really shown um, that the fecal stream of babies with neck are dominated by these gram-negative bugs, right? So this, this shows an association, but it doesn't necessarily prove causation. So what about the host? Um, well, typically when you think about a 23 or 24 week infant, we usually think that they're very immature. And that's, that's true, their lungs are immature, their brain is immature, um, skin is thin, their eyes may be fused. But in fact, when you look at their innate immune system, their innate immune responses, they're amplified or exaggerated. Here you see some expression levels of pattern recognition receptors, uh, microbial pattern recognition receptors and downstream signaling molecules. This is in uh, sterile fetal gut tissue from 12 to 16 weeks um, compared to term infants. And these, these levels are all increased. Okay? And in particular, one of the molecules uh, or receptors there, TLR4, which is the receptor for lipopolysaccharide, LPS of gram-negative bacteria, um, is also elevated. And some of the inhibitors, inhibitors of TLR4 signaling are decreased. Now, we, sh we showed the same thing in murine tissue, too. So if you deliver mouse pups by C-section, pull them out and look at their, their TLR4 levels, earlier in gestation, TLR4 levels are higher. Okay? So this is, this is actually normal. This is, this is uh, developmental because in addition to TLR4 being involved with being a receptor for bacteria, it's also a developmental gene. And it's involved with uh, enterocyte differentiation. So the normal state is to actually have really high levels of TLR4. It's not normal is to be outside of the uterus at 23 or 24 weeks. So kind of putting these together, when you have this elevated TLR4 expression in a very small baby and an abundance of LPS containing proteobacteria, this, this is thought to, to contribute to NEC where this signaling cascade that ends up happening results in enterocyte apoptosis, breakdown of the barrier, uh, bacterial translocation, and, and then activation of a lot of inflammatory mediators. And in fact, when you use TLR4 mutant mice in an NEC model, 
they are protected from developing uh, experimental NEC. And then if you look at uh, TLR4 levels in human neck tissues, um, they are quite exaggerated, both at the protein and message level. Right. In addition to that, um, there are, uh, macrophages play a big role uh, in amplifying the, the inflammatory response. And we know that these are also very poorly controlled in the preterm infant. Uh, here you see macrophages stained in red in both preterm and term intestinal tissues. They're also co-stained for TNF-alpha. And um, the amount of TNF that the preterm macrophages uh, um, secrete is, is much higher. You could also take these out of murine tissues, stimulate them with just a little bit of LPS, uh, again, a TLR4 agonist. And the earlier that you take them out, you take them out during fetal life, uh, they make much, much more inflammatory cytokines. So the macrophages are also very pro-inflammatory early in life. And this is, this is currently the, the referred to as the top-down hypothesis of, of necrotizing enterocolitis, where you have intestinal bacterial dysbiosis, predominance of, of these LPS-containing proteobacteria, excessive TLR4 activation, which leads to mucosal breakdown. Then you have bacterial translocation. Also is uh, accompanied by reduced intestinal perfusion and then activation of macrophages really resulting in a profound inflammatory response. Yeah. So with, with TLR4 thought to play such a major role with necrotizing enterocolitis, one of the targets that we decided to go after was this nuclear receptor in xenobiotic sensor called pregnant X receptor, PXR. So this, this is heavily expressed inside the intestine and the liver, um, where it performs a variety of functions. In the gut, it's, it's this sentinel, it's evolved in detoxification and dampening of TLR4-dependent inflammatory responses. So essentially acts as a break to, to reduce TLR4 signaling. So one would expect if you had reduced expression of your break, if you lose your breaks, Right, you would be at increased, the TLR4 signaling would go unabated and you'd be at increased risk for, for, for neck. And uh, that, that is exactly what we showed in a recent paper um, where uh, we used PXR deficient mice in a mouse model and we showed that these mice are, are very highly susceptible to, uh, to developing experimental NEC. In our NEC model, it typically takes four days for the, for the mice to, 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 de to develop disease but in PXR knockout mice, these mice get extremely sick with just after two days and have this very high elevation of inflammatory cytokines and, and uh, TLR4 levels. Right. <clears throat> so the, the, the flip side of this is that if, if, if reduced PXR increases NEC severity, we also then try to see that, well, can we amplify PXR signaling and reduce uh, or abrogate NEC. And, and for this, we use an established PXR agonist called lithocoic acid or LCA. This is also a, a secondary bile acid, which is present in the gut, produced by some select bacteria. And we're able to show that this reduced intestinal inflammation in the early stages of experimental NEC. Um, but then as we went over longer time periods, the inflammation progressed to really to similar levels as untreated mice. And this we think is more of a reflection of the model, which these models aren't aren't great, and they're actually quite harsh. Um, we tried to provide some higher doses of LCA, but this was limited because the mice got really sick because of liver toxicity. <clears throat> so this is an avenue that we're continuing to explore. Um, one of the latest things I've, I've gotten into is, is drug development and um, working with a collaborator, Albert Einstein, uh, been, have uh, been developing these non-toxic PXR activators. These are small molecule drugs. These are indole analogs. The indoles uh, bind to PXR uh, very well, activate PXR well, and they're non-toxic. This is, uh, shows that they're non-toxic. And you can ma manipulate the drugs as well so that they're not absorbed so they stay local within the intestine. And um, so we're hopeful that uh, the development of these, these drug analogs uh, will have some utility in ultimately preventing or treating intestinal inflammation, uh, such as NEC or also IBD. And uh, this uh, was recently accepted for uh, publication and this whole development of this, 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 this drug line. All right. 
So I'm gonna shift gears a little bit and um, talk about some more recent re uh, results on, on the microbiome that have to do with some uh, microbial physiology. Um, first, I wanted to go back to this figure and because um, one of the questions that comes up with this dysbiosis TLR4 paradigm is, is that how does this explain the peak timing of NEC, right? If you have really high TLR4 expression levels here, why is NEC happening all the way out here? And then when you look at these microbiome studies, um, ours included, again, they, they, they tell you about microbial communities, uh, predominance of these gram-negative proteobacteria, but they don't really tell you the specific uh, bugs that are, are, are really the, the major contributors. <clears throat> In our own study, we were able to get down um, all the way down to the family level and we identified what was referred to as an unclassified Enterobacteraceae um, that was a, a main contributor of this dysbiotic pattern. And it's referred to as unclassified because by 16S, you can't differentiate um, between different Enterobacteraceae. So this was a, a major a goal of our, of our lab over the last year, year and a half, was to, was to identify this unclassified microbe. And to make a long story short, uh, we identified it as Klebsiella oxytoca, um, or I'm going to say KO. Um, and we had, uh, there was a, a lot of work that went into this, and a lot of folks were contributing uh, with this. We had a, a, a new postdoc join the lab who had uh, um, uh, microbiology training and really helped to expand our approaches. So what we did was to use database searches to identify which potential matches for this, and then we developed this selective culture system um, this bug is very difficult to grow. Um, and we took an index case where this unclassified microbe was, was very, very high. And we finally were able to uh, identify these non-motile lactose, gram, uh, uh, lactose fermenting gram-negative rods. Um, we then sequenced those and went back and make, made sure the sequence was the same as our original 16S to make sure we had the right bug of interest. Uh, we've done PCR for KO-specific genes. We've done multi-locus sequence typing. I'll talk a little bit about that. And then we've taken all of our isolates and we, we biotyped them through this whole metabolic panel uh, through Yukon Health Micro Lab, and which they also give us antibiotic susceptibilities. So I didn't, I didn't know much about KO when this, when this, this data came out, um, but it turns out that uh, about half of the isolates make cytotoxin. And this is, um, uh, uh, more frequently uh, being associated as a, as a, as a major cause of antibiotic-associated hemorrhagic colitis, okay? Um, several reports, and these have all been in older children or adults and uh, treated with penicillins. There's outgrowth of this particular bacteria, which again makes a cytotoxin and, and causes some major mucosal disruption. This is now speculated to be the second leading cause of, of diarrhea or hemorrhagic colitis after antibiotics. And this organism makes uh, toxin uh, through this operon, but it uses these genes, the NPSA and the NPSB genes to make this very potent enterotoxin referred to as tilimycin, right? And then in the presence of indole, which is a, a product produced by KO and a lot of other bacteria in the gut, this is converted to this indole analog referred to as tilivalene, which is substantially less toxic. And we actually have data now that this is cleared through PXR. So this, the, the toxicity of this bacteria is really regulated by, or determined by how much tilimycin is present. And that in turn is, is influenced by the amount of indole. Right. So Klebsiella species and, and neck um, actually have a long history. Um, this is an older uh, study by Ivan France, um, where they looked at 51 NEC subjects and 50 control patients and found Klebsiella to be a major player, um, but they were unable to identify the species. Um, here's a more recent study that was by 16S sequencing, and uh, they again found this subgroup of, of subjects that there was this Klebsiella OTU-associated NEC, but they're again unable to identify the species. And this is because this, this bug is very difficult to grow. If you try culturing it out under normal conditions, other enterobacteria outgrow it. So you're going to miss it. 
So developing our culture system was, was really important. And to date, there have been no reports directly linking this bug to, to NEC um, or specifically cytotoxin producing strains. <clears throat> so to, to investigate if our isolates made cytotoxin, we did PCR for the um, cytotoxin genes. Okay, NPSA and NPSB, this is our NEC isolate. Uh, they do indeed express the toxin genes. We also got a toxin negative control from ATCC. They don't express these. Both of these express a KO specific a gene called PEHX. Um, we could also take our NEC isolates and, and take culture supernatants. We sent them for mass spec and they indeed have, uh, were able to uh, detect tilimycin and tilivalene inside the um, bacterial uh, supernatants. And then from a functional standpoint, we could take bacterial cultures, um, filter them out, and then uh, the cultures from our toxin-positive NEC isolates and then place them on intestinal epithelial cells. We found uh, the supernatants from our NEC toxin-positive isolates. These induce a, 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 a massive amounts of, of caspase-3. This is a marker for apoptosis, where those from the toxin-negative strains do not. The supernatants just destroy intestinal epithelial cells, actually, when you look at them underneath the microscope. Um, characteristic features of cell death. Now, we could do something called flow cytometry to quantify the amount of apoptotic cells as well. This is a, referred to as a sub-G1 population of apoptotic cells. And this is these cells, after the supernatants are applied, they're permeabilized and stained with this uh, propidium iodine, which binds to DNA. So basically, any groups of shells that are shifting to the left means that there's fragmented, destroyed DNA. Um, it's referred to the sub-G1 population. I mentioned that because I'm going to just show a few more of these apoptosis figures. So this, the, this bacteria really does quite a bit of, of damage to intestinal epithelial cells. So having identified uh, uh, the toxin producer in our, our index case, what we then did is we went back to our repository and we pulled out a bunch of samples from, uh, from additional NEC cases. And we ended up looking at a total of, of 10 NEC cases. We also uh, started looking at some controls as well. We had five here that are fairly well matched. Um, we're looking at more now. Um, but what we found was, was interesting with this, too, is we, we were able to detect the, the cytotoxin-producing KO in six out of 10 NEC cases, but it was also present in four out of five controls. And well, how, why is that important then? Um, but when we looked at the overall abundance of the, of the KO sequence in our NEC babies, uh, we, we found that this really sort of... It, very, dominated the fecal microbiome in our NEC cases where it was very low in the control. So this is, this is the nature of, of what we would say is a true pathobiont, okay? And pathobionts are present in healthy people as well, okay? So there, this organism is present, we think it's present in a lot of pre, premature babies. Um, but what determines it going from here to a pathogenic state is something that we're really interested in at this point. Um, here are two examples of how the, the rarefied reads for the, for the KO sequence varied over the NICU course. These are, are quite different, but still interesting. This, this infant here had a relatively benign uh, uh, early course, um, was treated with antibiotics for 48 hours, um, but had a high abundance of KO while the baby was asymptomatic really during this period of time. Got up to full feeds, uh, was on four of HMF, as we say, two of liquid protein, and then had some dual kelp added. And, and um, later in the course, there just this late, late spike that was uh, around the time that the baby developed bloody stools, pneumatosis, shifted CBC, um, and uh, needed to be reintubated and um, was treated medically for, for 10 days. <clears throat> This baby actually had quite a different course. This baby uh, developed E. coli sepsis after delivery and was treated with antibiotics for 21 days and had another short course of, of antibiotics and then developed cellulitis at the chest wall, had a, a chest tube in, so re received another course of antibiotics here. And then a few days after that was complete, had this massive increase on KO abundance, developed fulminant neck, portal venous gas, and died. Um, 
And uh, these, these two cases are, are fairly well representative of the other ones as well, where we see a pattern uh, of the abundance being related to antibiotics in about half the cases, and a, pa a pattern where the abundance is not related to antibiotics in about half the cases. Um, we're looking more into that now. Uh, we also did this multi-locus sequence typing, okay, from all the KO isolates, the toxin-positive ones for both our cases and controls, and, and this separated into three different sequence types. And the, the main point of this is it, it showed us this was not a clonal outbreak, okay, and that we had sequence types from both cases and controls clustering together. So again, this pathobiome was present in both cases and controls and trying to, to determine what causes its outgrowth and increase uh, and uh, abundance is what we're looking at. We know that antibiotics is one of those things, um, but we are also interested in nutritional aspects of that. And I'm gonna go back to this figure here, okay? Um, this toxin figure, um, and I already mentioned before that tilimycin is really the bad actor. Okay? This is the potent enterotoxin. Uh, but then the conversion of tilimycin to tilivalene by indole decreases its, its cytotoxicity. And we can test this experimentally as well, because when we add indole to the bacterial cultures, we essentially, ab we abrogate the apoptosis, goes way down, okay? And there's also a 200-fold reduction of tilimycin by, by mass spec, okay? <clears throat> so indole seems to be beneficial because it reduces tilimycin concentrations and decreasing, de decreases apoptosis. And the question is, well, what controls indole production? So indole is a product, that it's, it's a byproduct actually, that's made by KO and a bunch of other commensals as well. Um, and this is made as uh, a byproduct of the bacteria using dietary tryptophan, which comes from protein, okay? Um, and they use the enzyme TNAA or tryptophanase. They're using tryptophan to generate energy, okay? And they're producing indole as a byproduct. Um, so when bacteria are metabolizing protein sources, particularly tryptophan and protein, they're making lots of indole and they're basically shutting down this, this, this bacteria, the toxicity of this. <coughs> the problem with this is that as by the title of the talk, bacteria can have a sweet tooth, right? And carbohydrates are a preferred energy source over protein, okay? And this is well known in E. coli. Um, and as a result of carbohydrate exposure, TNAA, tryptophanase activity is, is suppressed, okay? And indole concentrations uh, go way down. So with glucose, you have very little indole. Without glucose, you have a lot of indole. And we also showed the same thing for, for KO, um, where uh, exp uh, if you grow these in the presence of glucose, TNAA is repressed, and glucose essentially shuts down any indole production. You do see a small amount here at the end um, of the incubation because the bacteria are basically metabolizing all of the glucose that's present. Um, so then we can speculate that we think glucose and carbohydrates and repress TNAA, shut down indole production, and really sort of optimize accentuate tilimycin and cytotoxicity. And when we test this experimentally, this is exactly what happens. When bacteria are grown in the presence of glucose, a massive amount of apoptosis and large amount of and they're grown with carbohydrate, um, there's, there's very little apoptosis. It's about the same as, as um, uh, just media. And there's very little tilimycin detected, or none in this. So we think that this interaction uh, may help to ex explain this, this, this peak timing of, of NEC uh, in some babies um, where they're at risk for carbohydrate malabsorption. And really this is a period of time where we're optimizing calories in babies and, and putting a bunch of additives in. And if you have babies that really have poor gut motility, stasis and the food is just sitting inside the abdomen, um, the bacteria start to see these these carbohydrates as substrate. And if KO is there and you decrease the indole concentrations, this, this is gonna be a bad actor. And there's just, uh, there's certainly, there's older literature linking carbohydrate malabsorption to, to NAC in preterm infants. Um, this is about where we are with this particular story. 
Um, uh, we're certainly, we want to look at more babies now and look at other sites as well, um, in addition to translating this into a um, animal model. And also look at other markers of car carbohydrate malabsorption, looking at short chain fatty acids and the, the stool and things like that. Um, so I'm going to wrap up here now. And, and, um, and I hope I was able to, to um, express that the pathophysiology of, of NEC is, is multifactorial, which is likely representing multiple different subgroups cases. We think that one of those subgroups maybe the cytotoxin producing KO could be re responsible for some, if not many cases of, of NEC. And we think that this outgrowth of this organism can be influenced by antibiotics and its toxicity can be influenced by, by undigested carbohydrates. Um, so I wanna uh, acknowledge a lot of the folks that have helped uh, perform these, these studies and have also uh, um, supported this work. Uh, a special shout out to the NICU staff for helping to, to collect all those poop samples and uh, uh, patients and families for participating and also our, our funding source. Um, with that, I'll take some questions. Adam, where do you speculate that you may have to treat kids with this indole medication that you're working on? I mean, if this comes to fruition, do you think that you would, I mean, just given that we don't know which babies are at highest risk for neck, right? We, we can't identify early on which kids are going to get neck and which ones don't. Yeah. Do you have to treat everybody to reduce a certain number of cases of neck? Do, or have you guys not gotten to that point? Do you think this is going to be something for all comers? Or do you think you're going to be analyzing poop samples to follow things like um, development of, you know, an overabundance of Klebsiella oxytosa, and then say this kid's at high risk, like start treating now? Um, so I, I, I think the answer would probably be different depending on the subtype of, of neck that you're looking at. In regard to this, I think one of the things that we could envision is screening somebody for KO and then looking at their, their indole concentrations. Okay, if their fecal indole concentrations were low, I'd be, I would start to get quite worried in that baby. Yeah. Hi, did, you, did I miss something? But what is the connection between uh, breast milk and other formulas that seems to uh, decrease the incidence of neck? Um, I didn't go into that in, in, in I detail. Noticed. I mean, uh, you know, it was, was, was looking much more at the overall, um, at the pathogens that were, that were involved with this. Um, we're not sure of, of, of every, um, uh, actually, I'm going to rephrase that and say that there's multiple things in breast milk that we think are, are protective. The, the IgA content in that, um, there's a recent study that just came out showing that the, the IgA that's um, specific for a lot of the microbes inside the, the gut. Um, there's different growth factors that help to mature the intestinal epithelium better. Um, and uh, so, yes, there, there are multiple factors inside breast milk that help to reduce but not eliminate the, the, the risk of NEC. Yeah. that uh, the C-section has about 80% developed Klebsiella, whereas that vaginal delivery only 20%. So how that basically the vaginal delivery is protective for that one actually? Uh, okay, so I, 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 think, I think your question was by C-section, if you're colonized more often with Klebsiella? Yeah, that's what we saw in that slide that about in the C-section, we saw about, uh, I guess, was 80% was colonized with Klebsiella, where the vaginals, we had 20%, I guess, one of the slides we saw. So we're not entirely sure of, of the colonization rates for Klebsiella oxytoca or Klebsiella in general. Okay, in, in preterm infants. And I, I believe in that, that the, the figure that you're talking about, they didn't identify necessarily Klebsiella oxytoca. 
Um, and that was more sort of a, a general Klebsiella species. Um, so, uh, you know, Klebsiella oxytoca is, is a very resistant organism. There's recently an outbreak in Germany that was associated, it, it was in a NICU, that was associated with them um, using uh, their, their washer and dryers it was an energy saving mode and it wasn't heating the laundry well. And a bunch of infants got colonized with this bacteria and had infections. So it's, 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 a, it's, it's an organism, organism that's extremely prevalent, we believe, within the ICU environment. Um, and uh, uh, under the right circumstances, uh, we think that it can, that it can cause pathology. So in the, um, uh, I guess, the method slide for the biopositive collection, I saw that the collection starts at one week. Um, I was wondering if you've thought of, uh, say, uh, characterizing the microbiome for the prenatal or the meconium microbiome, and would, say, presence of KO in that sample be predictive of NEC occurrence? I'm sorry, can you repeat your question again? I didn't hear it fully. Um, so I, I was wondering if you've thought of um, uh, characterizing the microbiome of the prenatal or the meconium samples, right. and to see if there's any, say, KO in that sample, and would that be, say, predictive of NEC occurrence? Yeah. Um, I think that that's a good question. Um, uh, looking at the, 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 the maternal microbiome early on um, and how that relates to the, 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 the bacteria that are early colonizers. Um, people had, had traditionally thought that the, that the meconium is, is, is sterile, um, but if you do 16S on it, in our hands about a half, half of the samples, you can get small amounts of, of bacteria out this bacterial DNA. Um, but, uh, you know, still, I think that the majority of, of the, the organisms that we find coming through are more often related to the ICU environment. Um, and there are a lot of different regions or areas of, of, of the unit. Uh, we've talked about sampling a lot of different it, uh, regions inside the unit. And I think that that would be, you know, also looking at maternal microbiome. If, if, if you're tracking strains, and that's actually one of the things that we've talked about doing recently by doing long reads. So if you if you're, have a particular strain of interest, in your, for example, a cytotoxin producing Klebsiella oxytoca, and you're trying to figure out where exactly it's coming from, okay, then you can, you can do, you know, more whole genome um, sequencing or long reads in order to, to track those strains figure out where they're coming from. Are they coming from laundry? Are they coming from staff? Are they coming from mother? Are they coming from L&D? And how are they actually getting into the baby? All right. Great. Thank you. Uh, 